This is Jörg Naplo, and you're listening to Radio Free Leader. Welcome to Radio Free Leader. I'm your host, David Berkus, best-selling author and recovering academic, and this is the show that tears down the wall between the ivory tower and the corner office. Each episode brings you an outstanding thinker to help you lead smarter by sharing insights from social science and practical applications for leadership, innovation, and strategy. Make sure you stay up to date with Radio Free Leader and get some great stuff we don't share on the show by joining our community. You can sign up on the show notes page for this episode at davidberkus.com slash 729 or text Radio Free to 33444 if you're in the US and on your smartphone listening to this. We'll even get you caught up with our Radio Free Leader Starter Kit. It's a collection of our most popular episodes sent right to your email inbox, so you can listen in just one click. Again, that's davidberkus.com slash 729, or text Radio Free, all one word, to 33444. Today, we're talking to Jürgen Apollo. Jürgen is a longtime friend of mine. I met him originally because he was an advocate for Agile and a thinker in that space. He's a brilliant writer, and he's the author of the new book, Managing for Happiness, Games, Tools, and Practices to Motivate Any Team. A couple weeks ago, we had one of my other favorite writers, Emma Seppala, on and talking about happiness and the happiness track, and that show was a big hit. So that made me want to reach out to Jürgen. In addition to the fact that his book is just now coming out, it made me want to reach out and talk about, okay, we know the personal happiness effect on our own productivity. What about as leaders? What about as managers? What is that effect on productivity? So we're going to ask him a lot of questions. We're going to ask him about performance reviews, about merit pay, about how we can use each other and how we should be measuring ourselves and our own happiness and how we can better manage for the happiness of our teams and our companies. So let's get started. So who are you and what do you do? My name is Jürgen Apollo and I am a public speaker and writer and my favorite topics are innovative management. How do we manage organizations in the 21st century? And, and I should say, uh, you, you not only write about it and think about it, you put it into practice as well. You are uh, the CEO of a really cool global network sort of company called Happy Melly. I want to I talk a bit about that, but uh, also sort of the lead into that, which is kind of how did you get into all this mess? I mean, if I remember right, you first came on my radar because you were one of the bigger thinkers in the agile movement. And then there was this broader extension out from there into the overall management movement. Correct. So actually, I am a software engineer. Uh, I was uh, I was studying software engineering in the University of Delft in the Netherlands, which is where I'm from. I'm Dutch, um, but I quickly ended up in management positions, uh, probably because I was programming so badly that my team members wanted me away out of the team or something. And um, I, uh, I I learned how to better manage organizations. I had to learn that from scratch. I had no experience whatsoever, and I tried all kinds of things and. Some of the things worked and some of them didn't. Uh, I introduced uh, agile thinking, agile practices, because we had, we were software organizations. And that turned out to be uh, an interesting topic that other people uh, wanted me to write about. So I wrote a book, Management 3.0, that was my first one. And uh, it was a big success. And indeed, from that moment, I was known as uh, uh, the the writer about agile leadership, agile management. and and. After my first book, some people said uh, this is uh, stuff that is applicable to any kind of uh, or creative organization. So I started branching out and, and advising not only software people, but also others uh, how to have more innovative companies in, in the 21st century. 
And you know that that's where uh, I got really attracted to your ideas because again they they cross that line. I think there's been a couple different people that are uh, talking more about. Uh, agile ideas and their influence in it. But what confused me until I actually read the book, but what confused me was that the next uh, book is this new one, Managing for Happiness, Games, Tools, and Practices to Motivate Any Team. It's To me, it seemed like a bit of a pivot at first until I, I dove into it and realized that this really ties into that same shift that that I've talked about a bit too, which is that you know, Drucker coined kind of the age of knowledge work, but we're really kind of in, most people are doing creative work now, and it's a little bit different, and the tools that you need for that are a little bit different. My question, I guess, that most people are probably going to have, which is what I had before I read the book, which is this like this happiness thing. Why do we need to bother to focus on that? I mean, don't we need to just make sure people get their work done? Well, that's, that's a good question. Um, I, I started my company, um, Happy Melly, uh, a couple of years ago with some friends. Indeed, we we, we, we see it as a business network because it's, it's people, partners, entrepreneurs, freelancers working together under under one name. And we we thought uh, we needed a purpose, and we quickly settled on the purpose of uh, helping other people be happier in their jobs. Uh, so the purpose was there. Uh, this helped us to uh, to 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 focus, and um, and then I continued writing books and speaking at events, and uh, and then my publisher uh, then Wiley reached out uh, asking if they could take over publishing of my latest uh, self-published book, uh, which had as its title "Workout" because I used the metaphor of of workout exercises for healthy organizations, and they said that happiness is. Um, is actually a great topic, and um, uh, it it turned out that that was a better title for the for the book, managing for happiness. So that's what I uh, that's what I settled on. Yeah, and I mean, I think there's there's definitely a, a case to be made. Um, I was being the the devil's advocate there for sure um, on this idea of managing for happiness. That as as something that we especially need in the in the creative work economy. I mean, I t- this is. Again, this is this is a siren call that I've been singing as well. This idea that as we shift the nature of work, different things become more important, and we can't really just sort of do the Frederick Taylorism idea of just squeezing productivity out of people. And and if we're going to engage their brains and their creativity, we have to make sure that those brains are happy and healthy. One of the things I thought was interesting in the book is your ideas around measurement and rewards, measuring performance and also rewards. Because again, this is something that goes to the core of you know management 1.0, management 2.0, management 3.0. You um, you have to know what you're going to measure and you have to reward it. But th- there, there may be some things we're doing there that are actually causing people to be far less happy and not having the motivating effect that we wanted. Yeah, yeah, uh, true. So uh, I find measurement a, 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 a very important topic. We, we don't know whether we achieve our purpose or not if we're not measuring our progress uh, uh, along some lines and towards certain objectives. Um, a question that I frequently get is, is how do we measure other people? Jorgen, how do we measure the performance of teams and how do you compare this team versus that team? And I keep telling everyone, well, why don't you measure yourself? Uh, you have a great purpose, I hope, and you want to achieve progress. And I often compare it to athletes, uh, sports people who measure their own progress towards a purpose, uh, perhaps with a, with, with a coach helping them uh, with good practices and how to measure better. And we should have a similar approach in organizations. So I advocate people measuring themselves and, uh, and happiness would be one of the things that you could 
measure. I've just been talking about that today with people on how to measure the happiness in organizations. Uh, there are various uh, uh, suggestions uh, for for that. You could, for example, uh, measure um, uh, on uh, on a scale of one to ten, like with the Net Promoter Score. Uh, would you recommend this organization to your friends to come and work here? Uh, that's a very useful question. That's an employee Net Promoter Score, and that measures indirectly the happiness of people working at uh, at the company. Um, and uh, and that would be a great measurement for. For, for management, for me- management measuring themselves on the uh, happiness and engagement uh, 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 dimension. So um, yeah, it, it somehow comes all. It all comes together. The happiness and the measurement. It's uh, those are. I find them infor- important topics. So um, just for those listeners that may be unfamiliar with the Net Promoter Score, let's dive down a bit more into that because one of the things I really like about that idea is. I feel like ch- happiness has the same measurement challenge as engagement. You know, Gallup really popularized this idea of measuring engagement, but it's sort of like if you give, if you keep giving the same questions over and over again to your group of employees, at a certain point, they're going to kind of just game the system. I think engagement might be one of those things um, that has a sort of Hawthorne effect. Once we start measuring it, it inevitably goes up just because people are blowing off the test the more times we give it, et cetera. So talk about Net Promoter Score, how it's been a bit different from a customer service standpoint, uh, and also how it works for those that are unfamiliar with it, and then how we would dive into that in an employee setting. Well, um, you have a good point that people tend to game the system, but that is specifically um, uh, in situations where they do not own their own metrics. Uh, when I measure myself, when I try to measure my own progress uh, as a professional, uh, I don't see any reason for gaming my own system. Why would I? That my own metrics would become uh, useless. Um, uh, so uh, whenever you uh, whenever you measure, you should be measuring yourself. I find, and management should be measuring themselves, and then there is less of an incentive to uh, to start gaming. Um, about Net Promoter Score, well, um, uh, I find it a useful uh, uh, measurement. It is. Uh, it reflects on how well you're doing your job from the perspective of the of the stakeholders. So they say whether they recommend your service or your product to to their friends or not. I see the metric pop up everywhere, like with hotels that I book, with tools that I use. Every time I am asked, uh, would you recommend this to your friend on a scale of 1 to 10? And uh, then there's a formula uh, converging this to a, to a percentage. Uh, you can look up the formula on, on, on Wikipedia and elsewhere if you're, if you're interested. And it's, uh, people see this as a, a quite useful, a useful metric. It is, it is the stakeholder telling you how good you're doing. Uh, how well you're doing in in your job, and I think it makes sense to apply that to uh, to employees as well, because ultimately they're stakeholders as well, aren't they? It's not only customers and suppliers who, uh, who are stakeholders and and, and and the shareholders of the company, but employees too. You you bring up a good point. We'll we'll put a link to in the show notes to Net Promoter Score, so that people can find it. Uh, and it, you also bring up a great point about owning the measurement instead of just management giving me this idea, the idea that you're measuring yourself and you're kind of owning it. That actually leads my mind to another thing that I appreciated in the book um, and another idea that you and I, I think, are the same page on, which is this uh, the annual rite of passage of the performance appraisal, right? If we're going to do measurement and rewards a little bit differently, then it just makes sense that we're going to have to deliver feedback a little bit differently and in ways that are a little bit better. And you talk about a lot of those in Managing for Happiness as well. Yeah, so uh, that's probably one of the most famous practices in the management world, uh, the, the annual performance appraisal. Um, I, I 
I think it was once mentioned that about 90% of the businesses uh, have such a practice in place where they have an annual conversation with employees about their performance and their and their jobs and their future at the company. Um, and what I found about this, this practice is that it tries to combine uh, a couple of different objectives, like uh, offering people feedback on how well they're doing, um, also uh, um, uh, getting, um, uh, getting some input to decide whether or not they uh, should get a raise or how much. It is also to establish a paper trail because, well, you never know. At some point in the future, you might have to get rid of that person. So you need to document uh, some things that may have happened um, and a couple more. And all these these reasons, they're, they're, they're good things to, to take into account. But the performance appraisal tries to combine them all in one practice. And that is like, it is a bit like the Swiss knife I have suggested in my book. It is an interesting tool, but it is not particularly good at any of the different functions that it tries to combine. Because it has, there are better knives, there are better coarse screws, there are better scissors around you once you start looking for them um, uh, than the, all those that are combined in that one Swiss knife. And the uh, same applies to the performance appraisals. There are better ways of determining composition. There are better ways of measuring performance. Uh, there are better ways of talking about, uh, about talking about a person, about their, their development and their future at the company. Um, one thing that uh, stands out specifically is, uh, is more frequent feedback. You shouldn't you shouldn't just talk about a person's performance once per year. There, there's an opportunity to do that like every week, perhaps. Uh, you just have to make it much simpler practice, uh, faster feedback to, to all the employees. And also, what I find uh, relevant is that peer-to-peer -peer feedback is more valuable than, than feedback from the management's perspective because they often don't see that much of what is going on in a company. So I prefer peer-to-peer -peer feedback systems, uh, of which I see many emerging uh, in the last uh, couple of years or so. Um, uh, I just got another one demoed to me just, uh, just this morning where people give each other transparent and constructive feedback about everything that they're doing. And then you have great data about a person's uh, behaviors and performance and the annual review is just reduced to um, a simple assessment of everything that happened over the last year. So I'm I'm totally with you and I, I loved the Swiss Army knife analogy because it is it's that thing where we, we started doing it and then we figured we could throw this thing on and throw this thing on. And that's the question I get when I when I go and talk about uh, under new management. My book is this idea that if we got rid of the performance appraisal, the annual thing, it, you know, first question is always, well, what do we do with the paper trail to which I point out that, you know, it's possible to create a paper trail of poor performance without actually five years worth of annual reviews. If anything, if it takes you five years to get rid of a bad performer, <laughs> your system is not working as well as you want to admit. Um, but then the other question, and, and you have an answer for this in the book as well, does it goes around pay, you know, as soon as we started doing almost as soon as we started doing performance appraisals, we got the idea to tie merit pay into it. But if we're moving to a much more frequent and much more flexible feedback system, how does that change uh, our merit pay discussions? And in, in that case, what, what should we be focused on for making sure that we're paying per, for performance, especially in a world where in creative work, performance is, is a lot more difficult to, to measure and a lot more internally measured as we've been talking about? How, how do we do that? 
Yeah, so um, I have uh, I have been inspired by companies that use peer-to-peer systems in order to determine uh, who are the good performers and who are underperformers. And um, in a practical sense, it comes down to this. Um, each of my team members has uh, uh, 100 points at the start of the month, and they need to get rid of those points throughout the month through um, a, a very simple app on their smartphone, or the, they can use a website um, that they use to credit each other for their contributions to the to the company or to each other. So uh, I give five points to Lizette for helping me out today with my problem. I give 10 points to Andy uh, because he was so kind. Um, Whatever, it can be anything. Uh, the nice thing about the tool that we use is that you can add the corporate values to each of these comments. So every time when you reward someone with credits, you are reminded to tie it back to in, to the to the company values that you that you want to see recognized uh, uh, among all the employees. And then these credits build up over time. Some get more credits from others. Then uh, that's that's the case uh, uh, always in any social network, I suppose. And um, if you have some extra money to spare as a company, some kind of bonus that you would like to distribute among the people, why don't you use those peer-to-peer credits? Because basically you have many eyes in the organization assessing continuously who is performing and who is not. So uh, together, uh, basically, you, you, you let the crowd do uh, the job of of, uh, of performance measurement, and as uh, management, you simply determine what is the budget that uh, will be distributed by uh, through the crowd. It all it all is aligned with crowdsourcing, crowdfunding, uh, innovation happening more often through crowds these days. Uh, you tap it to the to the wisdom of the crowd and let them decide who gets the bonus and and who gets who doesn't or who gets a bit less. I love that idea. It's a sort of democratization of uh, merit pay. Um, quite a cool way to do it. Quite different from the bureaucratic way that that we're used to, for sure. And another example of a change we need to make inside of organizations to help people be happier so they can do better creative work. The book, again, that talks about all of this is Managing for Happiness, Games, Tools, and Practices to Motivate any team. Now, you you know, because you and I have interacted and we're friends, uh, you know what's coming next. We're going to transition from the book to you and ask you our five questions we ask every guest. You ready for that? I look forward to it. All right. First question, what's the best advice you've ever received? The best advice is um, uh, uh, iterate more often, fail in smaller uh, um, uh, smaller cycles. Um, I had a internet startup at the end of the 90s, early 2000s. Uh, I had angel investors invest in my award-winning business plan at the time. It was 1 million euros and we wasted all of it because we did not iterate. We did not cycle through small experiments. And uh, it was a very expensive learning experience for me. And later, mainly through agile thinking and, and, and lean thinking, I, I, uh, I got to know the principle of iterations and small experiments. Uh, better to fail fast and small uh, than uh, once and big. Uh, and um, so iterating with small experiments and failing at a small scale, that, that was the, the big difference for me. Interesting. I didn't know that there was a sort of um, rock bottom or conversion experience to agile uh, out there that that turned you into its chief evangelist. That's that's quite a cool story. I actually didn't <laughs> even know that one. So that's awesome. 
Uh, what's an average day look like for you? Oh, I wish I had them. <laughs> I know we're, we're recording this in the middle of a 50 day sprint through the U.S. to talk about the new book. So definitely not an average day right now. But, you know, if, if there is one when you get back home. Right. So the average day would be uh, that I uh, get up in the morning and I read my emails and all the social messages that I have received through the night. And uh, then I start planning my uh, my day with uh, the tool uh, that I use, Remember the Milk. I, I have everything in my task list. Um, I do uh, some uh, uh, some writing, probably somewhere in a coffee bar. Um, I uh, have a lot of conversations with organizers of events about upcoming uh, uh, conferences, uh, past conferences, etc. Because I do so many speeches um, and and company visits as well. And uh, at the same time, I communicate with my team all the time because we have a licensing program going on about the courseware materials based on my books. Everything is delegated to 200 trainers around the world and I have a team handling all the licensing. And uh, that requires a bit of management as well. And I do everything remotely. We have a remote team uh, distributed all over the world. There's no corporate office anywhere. Um, and um, I also see my team as my, my, my own little laboratory, which is great. I have my own little company where I can exper experiment with all the ideas. So that is also part of my day-to-day my, my -day work, is running experiments on our own company so that we can talk about that in our books and, and presentations uh, throughout uh, uh, elsewhere on the world. Awesome. Now, besides emails and social media posts and all of that sort of thing, uh, what else, what are you reading right now? I am uh, reading right now um, um, a, a number of different books actually on scaling, how to scale these ideas to larger organizations. I've been reading about um, uh, exponential organizations, liquid organizations, holacracy, sociocracy, um, all kinds of books that offer some suggestions about organizational structures at a larger scale that try to, to um, uh, 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 not end up in, in traditional hierarchies. I find that a, a fascinating, a fascinating topic. So it's, it's a bunch of books actually, but all about getting more network thinking and less hierarchical thinking in the company. Hmm. Besides agile, what do you believe that most people don't? What I believe that most people don't. I know, I know that you're the chief evangelist for Agile. That's why I put that, uh, that besides <laughs> in. That's a message that still needs to spread a lot. But beyond that, what do you believe that most people don't? Well, I noticed that um, I am a person who still believes that management has an important job. And sometimes I, I hear quite often that we don't need managers, we need leaders. Um, uh, there's a very, there's a negative sentiment uh, in, in many, uh, at many events and conferences uh, about the job of the managers. And, and face, let's face it, they have done a terrible job in many, in many companies, disengaged employees, etc. Uh, so they deserve criticism. But I think no management is is not a solution. We need good management. Uh, someone needs to take care of the whole system. And and I describe management often as the responsibility of, of, uh, of taking care of the system and not the individual people. Let the individual people manage each other and manage themselves. But someone needs to take care of the entire environment in which this can happen. Um, so, for example, one thing that often pops up is uh, the, the comment uh, that managers should be people's coach. Well, I don't believe that. I believe people should be each other's coaches. I think that managers have a responsibility of, of uh, increasing the coaching capability 
in the organization, but they should not themselves try and be everyone's coach because that it doesn't scale and many managers actually are not that good at being coaches. So they should make sure that someone is available or multiple people being coach for everyone else. And um, that is still a management responsibility, this coaching capability in the system without them doing it themselves. You know, that actually reminds me of one of my favorite quotes from the book. I forgot to bring it up before, but this, you have this, uh, wonderful passage around management, the, the need for continuing management, uh, but that management is so important. We can't trust it to just the managers that it's kind of everyone's business. I, I loved, I love that quote and I forgot to bring it up during our normal <laughs> exactly. questions. So I will bring it up here. Now, exactly. I, I know that you, you hinted at this split between managers and leaders, et cetera, but the title of the show is Radio Free Leader. And I, I want to get your thoughts on leadership as well. So in your view, this is our final question too, in your view, what makes someone a leader? Well, uh, that's, in my definition, very simple. You're a leader when you have followers. And uh, that means that many people who call themselves leaders in organizations are not really leaders because nobody is following them. It's just a very trendy thing to call yourself a leader when you're actually the top manager or an executive of a, of a firm. But nobody is really really following them uh, in, in an in informal sense. So for me, those people are, just, are, are managers, um, they are executives, uh, whatever. But to be a leader, that means that there are people actually believing in what you're saying, what you're doing. They, they follow you willingly and voluntarily. And, um, and that is for me the definition of, of leader. And mind you, the, the great managers definitely need leadership capabilities. I, I totally agree that there is more leadership needed among the managers, but also uh, among others in the organization who do not have a management position. Still, they can introduce new ideas, experiment with practices. And when they introduce an idea and they get other people involved, then by definition, they are leaders as well. Great thoughts. Great thoughts. The book again is Managing for Happiness, Games, Tools, and Practices to Motivate Any Team. We'll have a link to that in the show notes for this episode. We'll, we'll also have a link to uh, the Happy Melly site, Management 3.0 site, and, and all of those things for people to check out. So uh, I, I, I hope you the rest of your 50-day tour around the U.S. goes uh, really, really well. I know it will because <laughs> this is a message that, that needs to spread. So thank you for coming on Radio Free Leader and spreading it here as well. Thank you, David, for inviting me and asking me. And uh, and indeed, I uh, I look forward to all the other events uh, throughout the book tour, meeting uh, meeting many people, because uh, there we need more happiness not only in the U.S. but elsewhere in the world uh, uh, as well.